0: Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Millie Solomon, President of the Hastings Center, and this is the next in our series of Hastings Conversations. Our goal is to give you a window in on the fascinating issues our scholars study and analyze and about which they write and speak here and around the world. I'm especially delighted that the scholar we're featuring today is Thomas Murray. Dr. Murray was the president of the Hastings Center for 13 years, from 1999 to 2012. In addition to serving as president emeritus at Hastings, Thomas played a major policy role on numerous bioethical issues, including what we're going to talk about today, the regulation and oversight of sport. The World Anti-Doping Agency sought out his guidance as a bioethicist and invited his counsel in setting anti-doping policies worldwide. He's the founding former chair of the World Anti-Doping Agency's Ethics Issue Review Panel. and In these roles, he's had a front row seat, helping to prevent and respond to doping, including direct involvement with Russia's doping scandals. Tom's also the author of a new book, Good Sport, Why Our Games Matter and How Doping Undermines Them. That's a volume that grew out of a Hastings Center project. And he's on a book tour right now, so we're especially pleased that he could take time away to join us today. So, Tom, hello. Uh,
1: hi, Melly. Good to be talking to you.
0: It's great that you could join us. My first question's really direct, Tom. What's wrong with performance-enhancing drugs? You know, some people intuitively recoil and see them as terribly wrong, but others, including some bioethicists, have suggested that if safety can be assured, we should see these drugs just the way we see nutrition or great coaching, something that elite athletes are going to want to do to ensure the best possible performance. So, so what's wrong with that?
1: Uh, first, let me say how delighted I am to be uh, invited back into a Hastings Center activity. This is really a, this is a thrill. And now to your question, which is, in fact, I think the, the fundamental question that's uh, motivated me to look at this uh, since... Nineteen seventy nine, uh, when I was a Hastings Center NEH fellow and there was a project on uh, the use of drugs for non-therapeutic purposes and I got the half of it that dealt with drugs and sport. And that got me started and I thought it was going to be a one and done and I would write a little bit and then be off and that would be it for the rest of my career and boy was that wrong. Um, so I've, uh, I've been involved in thinking about Uh, the ethics of performance-enhancing drug use, particularly in sport, for uh, nearly 40 years now. And the question you ask is, I said this is a fundamental one, right? What's really wrong with performance-enhancing drugs in sport, uh, given that we encourage people to perform to their utmost in sport competitions we prize excellent performance and we uh, allow and even encourage all kinds of activities and even equipment that uh, that enhance performance so why do we object to drugs and i, I think the most common answer has been safety that is uh, drugs somehow threaten health and that answer still has some validity it's not it's not wrong it's uh, you got to fill in the fact background in many cases because not all drugs are harmful, certainly, and not all doses are harmful. Uh, but but uh, given the way sport runs, the likelihood that performance-enhancing drugs, if allowed free reign in sport, would cause harm, and not just among elite athletes. We can talk more about that. But as I dug more deeply into thinking about this, I, I came to the conviction that What's wrong with uh, performance-enhancing drugs in sport is that it undermines what is meaningful and valuable and what we love in sport, and that is the connection between the talents that people bring to a competition, the dedication they uh, show in perfecting those talents, and then the courage they demonstrate by uh, pitting themselves in a competition. And drugs can undermine the connection among those three, those three items.
0: Talents, dedication, courage. So you're saying that even if we could magically wave a wand and create, ensure safety, you're saying that it's really threatening the very meaning of sport, what we value about it.
1: That's correct, and that's correct. And meanings are human-made things. I mean, it's not like some, God has not designated the meaning of sport. That's not how it works. People figure out what they think sport ought to be about and what they value in it. And actually some of the more interesting uh, ways to get in, get a kind of insight into that connection is to look at how sports have sometimes rejected uh, equipment that has actually, uh, that enhances performance. One of the more dramatic examples is the way the sport of swimming, for which A variety of new swimsuits were were introduced uh, maybe about a decade ago. Uh, These were whole body. They covered the whole body. They had a super slippery exterior made synthetic fibers, and they were uh, impermeable. So when a swimmer, it took half an hour to put them on, I'm told, but when you put one of these on, it actually trapped air against your body under the suit, and that allowed you to float a little bit. Uh, in the water rather than actually slip through the water and there was a story of one uh, us swimmer in a foreign competition who actually wore three suits, one on top of the other, each of which gave her a little more buoyancy in the end, swimming decided that's not what we think our sport ought to be about and so they banned all of these suits and and uh, the new requirements now you know are for. Uh, permeable swimsuits they can't cover the whole body and uh, they have some other details but uh, the idea was that swimming said you know we have a conception of what our sport is about what kinds of talents uh, should matter and uh, what kinds of technique uh, and training should uh, make a difference and these swimsuits uh, undermine that connection
0: and, and yet other things like hyperbaric chambers that enhance the oxygen carrying capacity of, of one's blood have been cleared, if I if I understand that correctly. So how do you account? How do you? How can a layperson like me figure this out? It feels like these decisions are somewhat random and arbitrary. Why, why no swimsuits, but yes to hyperbaric chambers?
1: All right. Well, it's going to take a couple steps to answer your question because I agree that, that's a puzzle, um, and it, it's appropriately a puzzle. Uh, first of all. T- uh, I think to recognize that in order to stage uh, meaningful competitions, sports have to draw lines. Um, they have to create rules that create the conditions of, of uh, uniform conditions of play for the competitors. Uh, my favorite example of a rule that looks just stunningly arbitrary is the distance between the pitcher's rubber uh, and home plate in baseball. Now the the rubber is the it's literally a, a rectangle, a rubber rectangle, that the pitcher's foot has to be in contact with as uh, he or she releases the pitch. Um, it's the distance between the rubber and home plate is 60 feet, 6 inches. Now, if anybody a, a, to, wants to nominate a more arbitrary uh, number in any sport, I'm, I'd love to hear it. But that, That's pretty wacky. Uh, why is it that kept at 60 feet, 6 inches? Because it works. Because if we moved much closer, uh, the pitcher would overpower the batter and baseball would turn into a meaningless game of just trying to deflect you know, pitches that you couldn't swing at because they came at you too quickly. You Move it back 20 feet and pitchers would be throwing batting practice and hitters would have field days. What, it, what that distance does is it retains the balance, the tension between the skills of the pitcher and the skills of the hitter. And so it keeps what, that sport, what the sport of baseball regards as a, a vital element in that, that part of the game. Now, the hyperbaric chambers. Basically, they are chambers. They're everything from bags that you would climb into to actual entire buildings that are maintained at an artificially high altitude. They Essentially, they pump nitrogen in uh, to reduce the partial pressure of oxygen. So it's as if you were on top of at Pikes Peak or someplace, they would they can actually adjust artificially the uh, the apparent altitude. What your body does is uh, responds to that stress and um, and uh, you know, adjusts adjusts. It adjusts by creating uh, by putting more red cells into your circulation. That's one of the adjustments, a primary adjustment that it makes. And critics note that, well, that's the same exact thing that people do when they uh, inject EPO, the biosynthetic hormone um, version of erythropoietin, which signals the bone marrow to make red cells. Uh, EPO has been a, a scourge in sports like cycling and uh, lo- and cross-country skiing and the marathon, where the limiting the primary limiting factor for the competitor is um, is exhaustion. So if, if you get somewhat the same result from uh, hypoxic chambers, why, you know, why do we permit those but ban EPO? And it's not a simple answer. These are lines are difficult to draw sometimes, but you need to have principles to draw them. And the principles that went into the permission, at least for now, of hyperbaric chambers are, number one, they're not nearly as powerful as EPO in, uh, in uh, increasing red cells. Two, uh, they're they, they're erratic. They don't work on everybody. So some people get a good result. Some people don't get a good result. And number three, the the benefit comes actually because the athletes have to still have to train at essentially sea level. Uh, so the athletes have to do all the work that they would have had to do anyway. Uh, they just get a little bit of an aid in the recovery. Uh, and those are seen to be enough of, make enough of a difference that we can draw a line between the hyperbaric chambers, which right now at least are permitted, and EPO, which is not permitted.
0: Thanks for that. That That's helping me navigate what seemed to me pretty random. Tom, you've been, a as you said at the beginning, you've been at this for a long time. In fact, you first called attention to these issues in what I consider a landmark article in the Hastings Center Report in 1983. So why is regulation and oversight literally taking decades why, why is it taking so long
1: well you know if more people read the Hastings Center report it would uh, they would have figured it out a lot a lot sooner
0: <laughs> good answer <laughs>
1: <laughs> so in that so the article came from a Hastings Center project where uh, we did a lot of listening I mean I met uh, athletes I met elite athletes Olympics Olympians and professional athletes and I met the people who trained them uh Took care of their medical needs, the scientists who advised them, and and I learned a great deal about how sport works. And the the fundamental insight uh, that came from that initial work was that the re- when I asked athletes came from a talk asking athletes, well, why does anybody use these drugs? Um, and the answer was pretty uniform. They said, well, if the drug works, and at elite levels where everybody's Quite talented and and pretty hardworking. Uh, if the drug makes say a five percent difference, and that would clearly be true of a number of the performance enhancing drugs that are in common use, uh, and I'm and the best uh, best competitor is two percent better than the next handful. Five uh, percent trumps two percent. So I've got three choices. Uh, if other people are using it. I can either compete without using it and hope that my talent and dedication is still going to allow me to be successful. That works, but rarely. I mean, Edwin Moses, my friend, uh, who was the world's best hurdler, uh, was just so superior to anybody else in the event that he won even though he was clean. Um, But that's a rare thing. In most cases, athletes will not be that much better than their competitors if the competitors have the advantage of the drugs. So number option number one is compete and hope to win without using the drugs. Option number two is drop out at that level and we now know that people did that. We know that the, there was a, a superb bike racer, Scott Mercier, an American who went over to join the European peloton and when he just realized that there's no way he could be competitive without doping like everybody else, he left the sport at that level. Option number three uh, is take the drugs like everybody else and I uh, hope that le- that relevels the playing field for me. The whole point of this movement called anti-doping is to create a fourth option, which is to compete without without using the drugs, reasonably confident that I'll have a fair chance to win based on my talent and my dedication. And what I pointed out in that article in 90, in '83 rather, uh, was this dynamic, uh, which continues to be. True, that dynamic is still very much in operation in sport. Um, But what I also pointed out was, look, it's not just athletes who are making these decisions in isolation. They're affected, of course, by the behavior of their fellow athletes. That's the whole competitive dynamic that we've just described. But more than that, they have ecosystems. They have support networks of scientists, doctors, trainers, coaches, suppliers, etc., And until very recently in the history of sport, uh, we've basically ignored these support systems. And in 83, I said, look, you've got to go after the ecosystems every bit as much as the athletes because they're every bit as responsible. And in fact, they use athletes and throw them away when the athletes get caught. So we have to go after these, you know, the ecosystems at the heart of this. And that has just begun to happen in the past decade or half decade.
0: Could you describe some of the promising approaches to doing that, Tom?
1: Well, you 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 go after these people. Uh, you don't let them walk away free. So with the um, there's an Italian doctor, Michele Ferrari, who was uh, Lance Armstrong's uh, advisor. He he helped work out the doping programs for Armstrong and his teammates, and and Ferrari's now been banned from sport. Uh, there uh, were, well, I guess. I could tell you an example, one case that I was involved in, and I was on a tribunal uh, for the IAAF Ethics, uh, uh, the Ethics Board, and we had a case of a, a Russian marathoner, Lilia Shobukova, who had been very successful. I didn't know that you could make millions of dollars a year as an internationally uh, competitive marathon runner, but between prizes and appearance fees, she was she was getting quite wealthy. But she was also doping, and uh, she turned up a positive. So she was approached by two of her uh, Russian officials, a coach and the head of Russian athletics, and was said, "Look, pay us four hundred and fifty thousand euros, and we'll make this go away." She she did. <laughs> but and then uh, but then two years later, they the officials realized they could no longer cover it up because there were some honest people working at lower levels of. Uh, doping in IAAF, who uh, kept pressing to get, you know, what's what's happening with uh, the Shubakova case. So they finally told her, look, we can't cover it up anymore. We're going to have to let, let it be public. And she said, I want my money back. And they gave her two-thirds of it back. And they said, we can't give her the other 150,000 euros because the lawyer won't give it to us. Well, they never said who the lawyer was. We now know who it was. Uh, and she said, well, I'm telling. And so she went public with it. And uh, so eventually, it found its way to uh, our ethics board, and I got to question the two Russian officials uh, who were involved in this cover-up. And they, basically, my view is uh, of m- meeting them virtually. We did it via video Skype. Was that they thought that this was absolutely business as usual, and how did we, you know, what gave us the nerve to think that we could challenge that this challenge what they were doing? Um, blackmail, doping, cover-ups—those were all. Those are everyday activities, I think, in some some corners of sport. So I think that gives me that gave me some insights into what went on in the previous Winter Olympics in Sochi, uh, when Russia had this, you know, quite brilliant and systemic system for, um, you know, having allowing athletes to dope right up and into the games, and then covering up the positives.
0: Thank you for doing all that work. It's, I'm sure it's it's very time consuming and very heartrending. That is a really wonderful place to pause and thank you Tom and thank you all for joining.